You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Matthew chapter 5, and this evening we're going to look at verse uh, 17 uh, right through to the end of the chapter. Don't panic. Uh, I did say that this was going to be a short series. Um, I didn't promise that the sermons would be short, but uh, I, I want us really just to get a, a sense of the pattern of teaching uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and the details uh, you can examine on your own at your leisure. So I want to read chapter 5 from verse 17 in the Church Bible, page 969. Chapter 5, verse 17, um, and we'll read to verse 24. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, stupid, foolish, idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Matthew chapter 5, uh, 17 through 48 is the longest section that we will handle in one message in this series, and it is a section that can be summed up in one word. Uh, the word is actually used in the verses that we read, and so I'll leave you to guess what that word might be. And I'll tell you just in a minute. I wonder if you've ever watched a mystery uh, on television or read a whodunit, or for that matter, played Cluedo or Clue, uh, for those of you who are not native uh, British games players. And when you have guessed that it was Professor, was it Professor Plum? in the study with the candlestick, and the truth is revealed, uh, you realize that you've got the wrong answer, and that therefore you, you must have misread the clues, or you've come to the end of uh, an Agatha Christie, or a John Grisham, or a whoever, and all the way along you've been guessing who it is that actually did it, and you got it wrong, and uh, then perhaps Hercule Poirot explains to you what the clues were, and you maybe leaf back through the book, and you realize that all of the clues were actually pointing 
towards the, the actual real suspect, and you just missed the clues. It wasn't that they weren't there, it was that they were there, and you misread them, and therefore you came to the wrong conclusion. Spiritually, that's the situation that Jesus is dealing with here throughout the whole of Matthew chapter 5. And the one big word that sums up everything that he's saying is the word fulfillment. And he has really prepared us for that right from chapter 4 when he announced that the kingdom of heaven had come. The time of fulfillment had arrived. And because the kingdom that was expected to transform everything had broken into the present day, Jesus was not only proclaiming that it had come, but he was showing its power in the way in which the power of his reign in the lives of people who had diseases and who were demon-possessed, that their lives were turned the right way up. The deaf could hear, the lame could walk. Those who had been oppressed by demons were set free, and the kingdom of God was being proclaimed. And then, as we've already seen, as the disciples gather round him, as he takes them apart up this hillside from the multitude of people who were following, he begins to explain to them that he wants them to see not only the power of the kingdom in the lives of those he has healed and delivered, he wants them to be seen as the people of the kingdom who are living the, the enviable life. Even if you hate what they stand for, you've got to want what they have. That, of course, is how some of us became Christians, isn't it? I must know many people who became Christians because they saw in somebody whose convictions they hated something that they themselves needed and were in that way drawn to Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, as we saw last time, that's what makes Christians the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if we had been going through the Sermon on the Mount at slow speed, we would have noticed with each of these beatitudes that Jesus doesn't just pluck them out of the sky. He doesn't just leave people feeling, boy, that was a clever idea. That's a new thought. Every single one of these beatitudes has behind it some passage, some theme, or some text from the Old Testament Scriptures. And now it's as though Jesus is saying all these clues to what would happen to the people who lived in the kingdom of God, those clues are all beginning to meet in your lives. And then, of course, he's in a situation where, unlike ourselves, we read the Beatitudes and we say, very familiar with that, know that, done that, been there. And it doesn't strike us the way it struck many of Jesus' listeners, probably all of Jesus' listeners. Because in the background here, and you'll notice this if you turn right to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, in uh, verse 29, I think, the response that there is to Jesus' preaching. What did Jesus' hearers say as they walked down St. Peter Street at the end of the sermon? Well, here's what they said. They said, that was absolutely amazing because it was so unlike the preaching we're used to hearing. It was, it was, it it had such authority. It seemed so real by comparison with the teachers of the law. And isn't it interesting? for all that Matthew has pointed out that the Scriptures are being fulfilled in Jesus, and he has all these Old Testament quotations where he says, do you see where the clues were pointing? The clues were pointing to Jesus. The time of fulfillment has come. 
The power of the kingdom is being seen in what he does. It's being seen in the disciples he makes and the way they shine as the light of the world and what the people are thinking. If you could draw, if you were a cartoonist and were drawing bubbles above their head, all those bubbles would be filled with. But this isn't what the teachers of the law tell us. In fact, shock, horror. Jesus hasn't even mentioned the law. All he's spoken about is fulfillment. And of course, the teaching they were used to hear from the teachers who reigned supreme among them was to take them line by line through the law of God and to help them to understand what it meant and how they should apply it to their lives and what other laws they needed to add to God's law to make sure that they never broke God's law. And so they wove this intricate pattern of, for example, how do you keep the Sabbath day? What does work mean? And then they analyzed work, and uh, they had all kinds of intricate explanations of what constituted work and what didn't constitute work. And here was Jesus, this completely different. Does this mean that Jesus was was overthrowing the law, that Jesus was overthrowing the teaching of the prophets who picked up on the law and kept coming to the people and saying, you're not obeying the law, you're turning away from God's covenant? Was was Jesus doing to the Old Testament what he did to the money changers in the temple? Was he going up and throwing it out and saying, enough of this law, what we need is these beatitudes? Well, of course, uh, that's the point of the illustration. Their teachers had missed all of the clues. Maybe I can put it this way. Their teachers were like little children who had collected caterpillars. And one day they went into the room where they kept their caterpillars, and there were butterflies flying around and the children get into a, an antsy temper because the caterpillars aren't there any longer, because they didn't understand that the caterpillars were going to become butterflies. And uh, you see, here were these people, and one of the things they had done was that it's almost as though they had taken the law out of the hands of the person of the Heavenly Father and said, now let's see what we can do with this in our life, which is what many people do with the law of God. Let's see what we can do. How do we obey this? And they never really asked the question, what is it that the heavenly Father is pointing us to in the law and in the prophets? Where are all these lines leading us? What's the end of the story? And they didn't see, they couldn't understand that Jesus was the end of the story. That the reason there were all these civil laws was to keep this people together until God's promise to send the Messiah through them would be brought to pass. And the reason for for all this stuff we're reading in Exodus, as Willis just explained to us, was not because God is supremely interested in tents in the desert, but because these were all pictures of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. Most of the book of Hebrews is taken up, isn't it, as Will said, with explaining that that wasn't the real thing. It was just a working model. And all these laws that they had taken out of God's hands and were working out for themselves and the scribes explaining them in great detail, they, they didn't see that that law was there, as Paul says in Galatians 3, uh, to be like the slave who took the child to school to guard the people of God and to teach the people of God how to live for God until it became clear to them in the life of a single individual what it meant to be obedient to the Heavenly Father. 
I don't know if you're ever in this position at school. Really hard problem. Intricate details. And the person sitting next to you has, for some strange reason, got a copy of the textbook that has the answers in the back. And you see him, and he's, he's looking at the back, and then he smiles, and, and then he goes back to the problem, and he works the problem out. And you're sitting there, and some wretched kid tore the answers out of the textbook you were given. And that's what the people were like. They were like, they were like people reading a book, and they didn't know that there was a conclusion to the book. And they couldn't see that Jesus was the conclusion. They, they were looking, if you could put it this way, they were looking at the left-hand side of our Bibles to try to work out, what does all this mean? Is there a big picture here? Where is all this going? And uh, as was true at school, true in the Scriptures, the answer was at the back of the book. And they couldn't see the answer. He was standing right before them, and they couldn't see that all these lines in the Old Testament Scriptures were actually pointing to Him. And so, there are really two very simple lessons for us in these long verses this evening. The first, I think, is this, that the law of God finds its fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus. It's such a simple thing, but I think I might be bold enough to say, I suspect perhaps the majority of Christians don't quite get that. They separate the law from Jesus. They look at the law as a thing in itself, and they don't realize that God gave that law in order to point His people to Jesus. And even, even the elements in the law that, that produce a sense of sinfulness and guilt in us, that's what they're there to do as well. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 7, he says, I, I wouldn't really have known sin unless the law had come to me and convicted me of sin and shown me how much I needed a Savior. Isn't it true? That is reason number one why people do not seek Jesus Christ, because they do not see how much they need a Savior, or that He is precisely the Savior they need. And so says Jesus here in verses 17 through 19, you, you mustn't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. I came to complete them. Do you remember how on the day of His resurrection, when He, when he walked on the Emmaus Road with those two disciples, uh, who I think were probably His relatives, that He said to them, you know, you are so foolish. You're so foolish that you, that you don't believe what the law and the prophets said, you don't understand. They were, they were pointing to Jesus. They were pointing to the suffering servant coming and dying and rising. And, and instead of jumping up and down on the road to Emmaus, it was, it was only when he disappeared from them that they… Of course, they hadn't been able to speak privately to each other about their experience. And they turned to each other and they said, did you feel what I felt? My heart was burning within me because at last it was becoming clear. I had the answer to the problem. I had what was in the back of the book. And now, now that I see where the whole thing was going, I'm able to begin where it was going and look back and see how it all fits together. So, says Jesus, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And He does, of course, He fulfills them in all kinds of different ways. He fulfills them in the sense that He is the person, the Savior, the prophets promised. 
He fulfills the law and the prophets in the sense that he is the one who is obedient to the covenant requirements of the Lord. He fulfills the law in the sense that he is the sacrifice to whom all the sacrifices pointed who would bear the burden of God's judgment for the way we have broken the law. And he fulfills the law also in the sense that he is, since he is the one for whom this whole nation was called from Abraham's time onwards, from, for whom this whole nation was created, it was created in order that through them the Savior of the nations would come. So that now that he has come, the people of God are no longer a single nation with local national laws, but a universal nation who live in countries that have all different kinds of laws and are able to demonstrate that the kingdom of God is able to shine no matter what kingdom or state or republic it happens to be set down in. And Jesus is saying to them, that's, that's what you need to see. That's the reason why you are going to become people who, who will have lives that, that, that seem to fit the way things were meant to be, because I have come as the fulfillment of the purposes of God. And uh, the sad thing is, and uh, you remember how the Apostle Paul reflects on this in 2 Corinthians 3, remember how he uses this picture of Moses coming down the mountain and his face shining, and him as his, as his shining face was there. He had to put a veil over that face. As the, as the glory began to disappear, there was a veil over his face. And Paul has a very interesting way of, of using that picture. He says, uh, he says, my own people, that's how they read the Bible. It's as though they've got a veil over their faces and they're reading the Old Testament Scriptures, and their heads are down. They're trying to do what the man in Psalm 1 was doing, and there's this veil, and they can't quite see. It's such a common thing, isn't it? And yet, of course, in Jesus' time, in Paul's time, a very special reference to his own people according to the flesh. I remember a number of years ago flying from uh, Newark Airport to Tel Aviv, and as I, I took my seat on the plane, always an aisle seat, this Jewish lady came and sat in the window seat. And so I'm thinking, this is nice. There's going to be a space across the Atlantic and over Europe uh, overnight. And then uh, onto the plane came a Hasidic Jew, in, in, immediately recognizable. You know, you You've seen them sometimes, perhaps in London or in airports, and the black, the, the hair, uh, the dress. And I could see him looking at his uh, boarding card and looking at the seat and looking at his boarding card and looking, at, and looking around. I knew what he was doing. He knew he was in seat B, and seat B was beside a secular Jewish woman and an obviously Gentile man. And he wasn't going to be polluted by sitting between a woman on the one hand and a Gentile dog on the other. And he fussed until he had got another seat. Well, you always try and sleep on an overnight flight, don't you? And I tried to sleep, but Every time I looked up, he was three rows in front of me. He was in the aisle seat. His finger was on Torah, law, all night long. You know, when the first psalm speaks about the blessedness of the man who meditates on the law, the word means mutter, mutter. You know, it's only relatively recently in history that people talked into themselves until the medieval period People always, even when they were reading to themselves, they always read out loud. So you're, you're reading, you're to judgment. He was his finger on Torah all night long, thinking he was doing what the man in Psalm 1 said was what the blessed man did. 
And I thought, oh, the veil is over your eyes. You don't see. You don't even see from Psalm 1 into Psalm 2 that God has set his messianic king upon the hill of Calvary. You don't understand that he is the savior of Psalm 22, that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he is the son of man of Daniel chapter 7. And there you are with your finger on the law and the prophets, but you can't make real sense of the clues. Otherwise, you could have had the pleasure of sitting beside me and talking about Jesus Christ all night long. And instead, you can't function. You see, there's this wall of division, and you're, you're held in, and the law is everything to you. And no matter how wise he was, how learned he was, no matter how much better his Hebrew might have been than my Hebrew, spiritually he was like a child trying to find his caterpillars and not looking at the beauty that they had become. And that's what Jesus is saying. That was, that was why his teaching on this occasion just blew the people out of the water. I don't know how much they understood, but they, they must have got an inkling of the way in which Jesus seemed to be able to put his hands into the Old Testament and bring these things out in such a living way and teach them that the law was going to be fulfilled in him. They didn't. None of them understood exactly how that was going to be. But you see what he was doing? He was, he was putting his hand on the veil and saying, let me, let me just give you a wee peek in here. I want you to know there is something on the other side that makes sense of everything that has gone before. But then Jesus kind of turns it around, and you'll notice he says in chapter 5, verse 20, you see, here are the scribes and the Pharisees and all the laws and all the little details of how you keep the law. And Jesus is saying, you are so blind. You're looking at the law when you could be looking at someone in whom the law is beautifully embodied. You're looking at the prophets and you're thinking, what is this all about? And the one about whom all of it is, is standing in front of you. You're, you're as blind, you're like Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? And Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless, unless you're born from above, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And isn't this brilliant in John 3 that Nicodemus says to Jesus? I mean, listen to what Jesus said. Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, Jesus, I don't see that. Out of his own mouth, he is acknowledging the truth of what Jesus says, but he is so blind, he can't even see the truth. And John is very particular to say, and by the way, this guy Nicodemus, he was the greatest theologian in Israel. He's a rocket scientist theologian. He could probably read Hebrew from left to right as well as from right to left. He probably knew the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures by heart. But you can be all of that. You can be rocket scientist. You can be great theologian. You can be quite a modest person. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we know you're a teacher sent from God. Otherwise, you would never be able to do these miracles. But spiritually, he's outside the kingdom of God. He's blind as a bat because he can't see Jesus. And Jesus wants to teach his disciples that once you have seen that all these clues in the Old Testament, all these lines of revelation, when you see that they are fulfilled in me, 
then you'll begin to see something else. Because he says, I want you to understand that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, there's no place in the kingdom of heaven for you. Now, that's a bit of a blow, isn't it? He said, now, you need to see me. You need to see all these lines meeting me. And then he turns around and says, by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, there's no place in the kingdom of heaven for you. Ah, but you see, he wants to teach them something very important. Not only that the law of God finds its fulfillment in him, but the law of God finds its fulfillment in us. The law of God finds its fulfillment in him, but the law of God finds its fulfillment in us. Now, you say, that's not a word. Fulfillment's a word. Fulfillment's not a word. I happened to read a part of a sermon by a, um, a chaplain to King Charles I, 17th century, one of the most honored men in England, and he said, when the times get worser, the saints need to get better. And I thought, that's not a word. Well, it's a word that was a word in the 17th century. And in the 21st century, fulfillment's a word from tonight onwards. It is a word that the fulfillment of the law takes place in the life of the Christian believer. And that's what all these statements that follow from verse 21 to verse 28 are undergirding. They all have little details in them, but you'll notice they all have the same formula. Remember last week? No, you don't remember last week, so let me repeat it as though I hadn't said it last week. You're reading a passage of Scripture. One of the things you ask about tricky passages of Scripture is, what is this not saying? What is this not saying? And people get into all kinds of difficulties with this section because they don't ask that question. They get into difficulties by thinking, it looks as though Jesus is overturning the Old Testament law here. You have heard that it was said to men of old, don't do this, but here's what I'm saying. But if you listen carefully to what Jesus is saying here within the context of how Jesus says things, you'll notice a very clear difference. When Jesus refers to Scripture, he says, God has said, or it is written. He never says, when he's referring to Scripture, you have heard it was said by those of old. So, although there are words here from verse 21 through verse 48 that reflect on the law of God in the Old Testament Scriptures, it's quite clear Jesus is not saying, you have heard that God gave the law, but here's what I'm saying to you. What Jesus is contrasting is not what God has said and what He has said, nor what the Old Testament says and now what the New Testament says. What Jesus is saying is quite simply this, you have heard how the scribes have taken the law of God and woven into it all kinds of little applications, many of them actually to defend people and themselves from the law of God. Now, I want to tell you what the law of God really says. And you notice when he says, you have heard it was said by the men of old, in the scribal, in the rabbinic tradition, rabbi so-and-so says this, but rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so gives us the answer. Uh, he says, you'll notice that the difference is this, that they are talking about the externals, but what God's law is really concerned about is what lies in the heart. And so, when it says you don't murder, it's not just talking about what you can do with a knife and a gun. 
It's talking about what you can do to a man's character or his reputation or even his livelihood by a few well-chosen words that will forever kill his reputation in the eyes of others. And if you go down through these passages, you'll notice that this is Jesus' emphasis again and again and again. The law of God is intended to get right to the very heart of our lives. And as it gets to the heart of our lives, as though it spoke to us or showed us God's will in a mirror, when we see the things that God forbids in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, for example, we understand that that negative command also includes with it a a positive command. And so, Jesus says, uh, you know, you've been taught that you are to love certain people. So, what do you do if the law says you've got to love certain people? Then you ask the question, well, who do I need to love and who do I not need to love? And Jesus says, you see what you're doing? You're, you're externalizing God's law. You're saying, if you would just tell me what to do, I'll do it. But Jesus is saying, God's law of love means there is nobody that you are not willing to make the sacrifice to love. And you see what he's pointing them to is this beautiful connection between the way in which these many passages of Scripture that describe the enviable life are taught in the Beatitudes and the way in which the law of God, when you unpack it and you see what's inside the wrappings, describe the most beautiful life you could imagine. Uh, he speaks about personal relationships. He speaks about purity. Uh, he speaks about marriage relationships and all the little externals. You know, if God has permitted divorce in His law for for what reason may I divorce my wife? Some of them held if she burns the cakes. That's as good a reason as any to divorce your wife. And you see what's happening all the time when we, when we divorce the law of God from the person of God. When we take the law of God out of the hands of the loving Heavenly Father, what we end up doing is try to negotiate our way around the law so that it doesn't hurt too much. And law is like that. Law is like that. It is evident that our national leaders do not realize that where there is no gospel to empower obedience to God's law, all you end up doing is making more laws. The more laws there are, the more laws there are going to need to be, because once you've removed the laws of God from the person of God, you have disemboweled those laws. They are absolutely powerless to effect either what they command or what they forbid us from doing. And so, now that our society is morally out of control, what happens? Our lawmakers say, we're going to have to introduce education to our tiny little children about all kinds of filth because that kind of filth is out there in society. And they don't seem to understand that when we have introduced those educational laws in the past. Think about the, the introduction of, the, of sex education in schools. That's the way we'll solve the problem. What they need is educated. No, they don't need educated. They need regenerated. And here is Jesus in the midst of this first great section of his teaching in Matthew's gospel, and he's, he's really saying, you know, when you get it, when you, when you see that it's all pointing to me, then you begin to see inside of it that what it's all doing is pointing to me so that in the power of my gospel, 
you can begin to become like me in your relationships, in your purity, in the way in which you live, in the way in which you turn the other cheek. And so, there is this beautiful challenge here as well as promise here that not only is the law fulfilled in Jesus, but God's law is filled full in the lives of Jesus' people. And actually, that's what, that's what people see. You know, if you're, you know, we are, we are imperfect Christians, you know, we have funny little bits, we can be quite eccentric and at times uh, difficult. Um, but when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, as Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes, you do understand what's happening, don't you? It is that people have seen the embodiment of the law being worked out in your life, and it is irritatingly beautiful. To see a life where there is, there is purity, how irritating that is. To see someone in the midst of all the salacious talk there might be in the office who is so committed to his wife that he, he wants to hear none of it. These, these are married men, aren't they? These are married men who have made promises, and they want salacious talk, and they're so angry when you as a husband are simply doing what a husband does, keeping the promises he made that he would be faithful to this woman. And on and on it goes. And so, when Jesus ends the Beatitudes by saying, and, and by the way, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, that's what they'll do to you, that's what they did to the prophets. He's warning us that this beautiful life of someone who has seen the answer to all the Old Testament questions and seen the embodiment of the beautiful law of God and the person of Jesus Christ, and has begun to see something of Christ Himself filling us full with that kind of righteousness that's far better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It is a completely different source. It has a different taste, a different atmosphere. It's a lifestyle it's, it's, like, it's like wings to a bird. It enables us to fly in obedience to the law of God. And that's exactly, of course, what when Jesus has risen and sent the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul understands this is the big difference. Here I am, and I'm reading the law, and I don't see where it's going, and there's a veil over my face but then I turn to Jesus and the veil is taken off my face, just like the scales dropping off his eyes. And then what happens? What's happening to me? Oh, he says, it's simple, really. It's that Jesus has sent his own Holy Spirit into your heart. And you say, Holy Spirit, what on earth are you doing in my heart? And he says, well, why don't you understand? I'm here to make you like Jesus. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, in a magnificent statement, what the law could not do because it was weak through our flesh. Law can do nothing in weak fleshly hearts. But what the law couldn't do, God has done sending His own Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin, condemning our sin in His flesh in order that, listen to this, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Can I retranslate that with my new word? That the righteousness of the law might be filled full in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. 
And so, you know, when we, it's very easy to read these words and say, oh, you know, for a moment I thought Jesus was relieving me of a burden, and now he's putting an even heavier burden on my shoulders in these verses. No, he's not doing that at all. What he's doing is fulfilling his promise later on in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, weary and heavy laden. They were listening to these scribes. Oh, it was so wearisome to keep every last detail of the law and try to be pleasing to God. No, he says, you labor and are heavy laden, and you know you can't do it. You come to me, and you'll find rest. And do you know what I'll do? I'll put my yoke upon you, and we'll live this life together, and I'll empower you by my Holy Spirit. And so, you'll no longer be thinking, oh, what's the law here? What am I supposed to do here? What's the commandment here? You'll be yoked to Jesus, and He'll be saying, now let me show you how by my Spirit, I'm going to fill you full of all of God's law and empower you to keep it. You know, I wasn't brought up in a church going home. My parents didn't start going to church till after I was converted as a young teenager. But, you know, one of the most striking things for me growing up in the 1950s, early 60s, when I was a young teenager was that the Sabbath was still kept in Scotland. And my parents kept it. They didn't go to church. We didn't sing or pray or read the Bible at home. But we kept the Sabbath rigorously in the sense that we never did anything on the Sabbath day. My mother would never have dreamt of hanging out the washing on the Sabbath day and break the Sabbath. And it was the most miserable day of the week it was utterly miserable. It was so long, and it was so boring, and it was so miserable. And this law, this fourth commandment, was crushing me to death. My mother told me after she came to faith that uh, when I was a little boy, I came running in and shouted to her that one of my friends across the street was playing football in the street, and it was Sunday afternoon. <laughs> no, it was very frustrating. And then the moment I became a Christian, it became the very best day of the week. And it's been that through thick and thin, without intermission, for more than 50 years. Now, did I knuckle down to keep the Sabbath day? No. The puzzle was solved. I saw Christ, and Christ sent His Spirit into my heart, and duty was transformed into delight. And then I understood that it was for delight that God had given me the duty, and all because of Jesus. So, what better thing could we hear as we come to the Lord's table, weary and worn and sad? Some of us broken down, even in our Christian lives, because we've been, we've been trying to do better. And we need to return again to the gospel and to the Savior. And uh, to sense that as the elders give us the bread and the wine, it's really the Lord Jesus saying to us, I know these are very small things, my dear child. They didn't cost the church much, but they cost me everything. And because they cost me everything, take this bread and this wine, because they're just little gifts to you to show you again just how much I have loved you and do love you. So now come to me and be yoked to me, and I'll fill you full with obedience to my Father's commandments that will change your life. May, may we so live in the rest of this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you again tonight for your word and 
look forward in these few minutes together to sitting as children of the Heavenly Father, as brothers and sisters of one another. We, some of us are very young in Christ and wish we were older. And some of us are older in Christ and in many ways wish we were younger. And none of us is superior. None of us has, none of us has made it. None of us feels that we have succeeded in the Christian life. We're all in need of a loving touch from your hand and a reassurance that you will do these things not only for us and in us. So make these minutes truly a time when we feast on your love, Lord Jesus, and draw us to yourself. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.